Our very first speaker is Anita Ponsang. Anita, as I said, is a mathematical physicist and lecturer at the University of Melbourne. She is one of the presenters of a science podcast called The Cosmic Tea Party. She's been told she plays too many computer games, but she doesn't think she plays enough. Please welcome her. Thank you. Computers are amazing, and they're everywhere in our lives, in our fridges, controlling our salaries, and of course, allowing us to communicate with uh, people all over the world with barely any delay. They are so useful and so ubiquitous that it's hard to imagine life without them. Have you ever tried to press Control F while reading a book? As an introduction, uh, let's go through a brief history of our electronic friends. But let's go backwards. So I'm going to open up the quick time of history and place my cursor on the rewind button. Um, sorry. <laughs> that was really late. <laughs> um, in April 2015, Apple released the Apple Watch. <laughs> All right. In 2008, a monkey had a chip implanted in its brain that allowed it to feed itself with a robotic arm that it controlled using its thoughts. <laughs> in 1997, the first version of what we know as Wi-Fi was released. In 1989, the first subscriptions to internet service providers became available. In 1972, the Magnavox Odyssey was released. This was the first home video game console that could be connected to a television. In 1967, the first driverless train went into operation in London on the underground line, uh, the Victoria Line. In 1964, the Olivetti Programmer 101 was launched at the New York World's Fair. This was the first commercial personal computer. In 1961, the first electronic desktop calculators were launched. These were called the Anita calculators. It's a good name. <laughs> in 1956, Maniac be became the first computer to beat a human at chess. In 1946, ENIAC, the electronic numerical integrator and computer, was announced. This was the first electronic general purpose computer. Keep in mind, it had only been 65 years since 1881, when a public building was fully lit up by electricity for the first time. That was the Savoy Theatre in London. But we're going to go back a further 90 years. In 1791, the Industrial Revolution was just getting kicked off in England. And this is where our story starts. For in December of that year, Charles Babbage was born. He was born by coincidence within a few months and a few miles of Michael Faraday. We heard about Michael Faraday at Laboratory last year. He is regarded as one of the fathers of electricity. But while the Faradays were poor, the Babbages were not. The history of the Babbages was in goldsmithery, and Charles Babbage was the son of a banker. His father, Benjamin Babbage, was not a warm man and appreciated things that could be used to make money. Mathematics was not generally one of these things. From a young age, Charles was curious, bold, and fun-loving. Once, when he was about 10 and at school, he tried to summon the devil. 
not with the intention of selling his soul, mind you, uh, simply to convince himself of the existence of the gentleman in black. He probably felt a bit relieved when nothing happened. He also had nerves of steel. He once visited the top of Mount Vesuvius, which was erupting continually at the time. He observed that the eruptions had a regularity, timed them, and during a quiet moment went and lay down near the opening to look into the lava. He then looked at his watch and moved to safety before the next eruption. <laughs> Did I say steel? Uh, maybe nerves of tungsten. On the way home, his boots fell apart. As a child, his knowledge of mathematics was mostly self-taught from books. At the age of 18, he went to Cambridge and began formal study. He worked on algebra and functional analysis and made solid progress. He would have been a great mathematician. But with pressure from his father to do something useful with his life, he forever had an itch to prove himself worthwhile. Now, the Industrial Revolution in England was taking hold and gathering speed. But England was quite isolated as far as uh, fundamental scientific progress was concerned. At Cambridge in particular, the study of mathematics and physics was a bit stagnant. This had at least two causes. The first, <clears throat> the first was a quarrel uh, 150 years earlier between Newton and Leibniz over who had invented calculus, um, which led to English mathematicians not being taught the continental notation for derivatives. This made the textbooks hard to read. Um, the second reason was the French Revolution, which was just bad timing. As an Englishman, uh, supporting French science was seen as revolutionary in the eyes of polite society, and that was a serious faux pas. Charles thought this was ridiculous. He knew a few continental scientists and could see how much England was missing out on. While at Cambridge, Charles taught himself the continental not notation and worked with some friends to translate a French textbook on calculus. He wrote essays on the decline of science in England and campaigned for the reform of the Royal Society. He worked hard at applying scientific principles to industry and dreamed of applying them to everything. He even wrote a book titled On the Economy of Machinery and Manufacture. He was truly a child of the Industrial Revolution. It was the, the 1800s. Steam power was the latest, greatest thing, talked about by all people of fashion. Fanciful, mechanized objects decorated drawing rooms. Factories began using steam engines to turn gears. Mass production, large banks, international commerce by ship, insurance firms. People like John Rennie and the Brunel dynasty were engineering the world. And at the heart of all these things were the numbers. Latitude, altitude, exchange rates, interest rates. The world was becoming modernized. Many things were becoming mechanized. But calculations were still done by hand. Commerce meant sailing. Sailing meant navigation. Navigation meant trigonometry. Every ship would be stocked with books of logarithmic and trigonometric tables, page after page of meaningless numbers. Of course, they're only meaningless until they're necessary, which they were back then. These tables were calculated by hand using two mathematical concepts, the Taylor series and the method of finite differences. The Taylor series is a way of approaching a function, uh, of approximating a function, sorry, like a log or a sign by a polynomial. Simply choose how precise you want to be and go. The method of finite differences is a simple algorithm that's a, uh, applied to polynomials. Here's a prop I prepared earlier. <laughs> You'll see there are some numbers on this piece of paper. Um, 
in the first column, okay, so in the first column I have uh, some values of x, okay? In the second, in the first uh, column on the left of the double line, I have um, the values of x squared for each value of x. Um, in the second column, what you write down is the difference between um, one entry and the next. So three is the difference between four and one. Five is the difference between nine and four. Seven is the difference between 16 and nine. In the third column, you write down the differences of the differences. And you keep on doing this until you get to a column where every entry is the same number. If you have a polynomial, you'll always get to a column that has a, a column, um, you'll always get to a column that has every entry being the same. For um, x squared, you, it's the third column. For x cubed, it's the fourth column, and so on. Um, but here's the trick. I won't put it away yet. If you know just the numbers at the top of each column, so if you know one, three, and two, you can reproduce the rest of the table just by adding. So you take two and add it to three, you get five. You take two, add it to five, you get seven. Three added to one gets four. Five added to four gets nine, and so on. And in this way, you can actually reproduce x squared for any value of x you like, as long as you're prepared to do a whole lot of adding. <laughs> a lot of adding. <laughs> So using this method, you could work out by hand the square of 1,052, for example. Um, I don't rec recommend you do that. It's probably a waste of time. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> In 1791, um, the year Charles was born, the French government ordered a massive set of logarithmic and trigonometric tables to be made in celebration of the new metric system. A team of around 100 people were, uh, was organized, some of which were mathematicians, but most of which were hired to do all the adding. They were called the computers. These were people with very little mathematical training, typically, because apparently they made fewer mistakes. <laughs> but herein lay the problem. They made mistakes. When mistakes were made, mistakes were published. When mistakes were published, Mistakes were used in calculations by, uh, by ship's navigators. When that happens, you get shipwrecks. <laughs> At around the age of 30, uh, around 1820, Charles Babbage had been spending some time staring at tables of logarithms and painstakingly checking for errors in them. When he said to himself, and I quote, I wish to God these calculations had been accomplished by steam. <laughs> he loves steam. <laughs> You see, mathematics is essentially a lazy person's game. Addition was event invented because multiplication got boring. Uh, that was wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Addition was invented because counting got boring. Multiplication was invented because addition got boring. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Given a task that is simple and repetitive, a mathematician is a person who will invent something in order to avoid having to do it. The tables were a result of endless repetition of a simple task. It was the perfect thing to be mechanized. 
So Charles set about inventing a machine that would create these tables. He called it the difference engine, despite the fact that all it did was add. He had a prototype built within two years, which had six-figure precision. With this prototype, and thanks to a recommendation from the Royal Society, he obtained government funding in 1823 to develop a much bigger version that would actually create a plaster mold of the end result from which the tables could be printed directly, meaning that there would be no errors between the, the machine and the publishing. It was the first calculating machine not to require human intervention. All that was needed was the original setting of the numbers in the top row, and it could handle any polynomial up to a given size. It was an ambitious project and a worthy one. The engine became the talk of the town, and people would come to admire the working prototype. But he ran into problems trying to complete it. He had arguments with his head engineer, and his desire for perfection caused the project to drag on. After a while, the public got bored, and the government got impatient. The funding for the difference engine ran dry in 1833. That was 11 years later. It was around this time he met Ada. Augusta Ada Byron was born in December 1815, the daughter of Lord George Byron, the poet, and Anne Milbank, a woman who hated poets, <laughs> particularly Lord Byron. <laughs> well, not at first, obviously, um, but Lord Byron was a flighty, unreliable sort. He was in debt and kept having affairs. Shortly after Ada was born, they separated, which was a scandal, and Lord Byron left England never to return. On her mother's orders, Ada was brought up under a very strict regime of mathematical and scientific instruction and no poetry. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. Um, <laughs> with the hope that all this rationality would subdue the passionate nature that she may have inherited from her father. But it backfired because she just became passionate about mathematics instead. Unlike Charles, however, she saw more virtue in pure maths than applied. She believed that God had made the universe using mathematics, and to understand mathematics at its most abstract was to properly honor God's creation. In 1833, when she was 17, she and her mother were introduced to Charles at a party. He was 41 at the time. Before I go any further, I should say that as far as I know, Charles and Ada were never romantically involved. So don't go getting any ideas. <laughs> Um, as a matter of fact, two years after meeting Charles, um, she married William King, later the Earl of Lovelace, making her the Countess of Lovelace, which is the title uh, by which we know her now. Ada and her mother uh, visited Charles's house one Saturday to look at the difference engine, as was fashionable. Um, Ada was fascinated by the machine and asked him intelligent questions that placed her a step above the standard company. She began to visit him regularly for intellectual conversations. Uh, after having had her society dictated by her mother for so long, Charles was a breath of fresh air with his wit and his disre disrespect for authority. He also found her a refreshing change from the inane questions of people who every Saturday would, uh, had not even tried to understand the workings and implications of his engine. At around that time, Charles had begun to think about uh, designing a new machine, one that could do more than just add, one that would perform complicated mathematical calculations, not just finding values of polynomials. He began working on the idea and discussed the details many times with Ada, his enchantress of numbers. Again, I quote, he realized that it would be too expensive to actually build one, but he hoped that his ideas could be used by others. 
In time, he came up with a few different possible designs, which he continued to tweak. He called it the analytical engine, meaning an engine that would break a problem down into its parts. He decided to use a system of punched cards to give instructions to the machine. He had seen punched cards used uh, in something called a jacquard loom, uh, which use, uses punched cards to dictate the pattern that it's going to weave. There is no doubt the analytical engine functioned much like a computer. It was able to add, subtract, multiply, divide, uh, but it could also feed a result back into uh, the start of a calculation, like a, for, uh, like a for loop, or change what it was doing depending on the outcome of a calculation, like an if-then statement. These are some of the most fundamental components of modern computer algorithms. It would have been able to solve systems of linear equations and calculate integrals and derivatives. Charles himself claimed that it would be able to multiply two 20-digit numbers in under three minutes. That's a bit slow by modern standards, uh, but still, it was incredibly powerful. But because he wasn't able to build one, it was also greatly misunderstood. Through his ongoing discussions with Ada, however, she understood it, and she also saw more possibilities coming out of it than he did. In 1842, Ada was commissioned to translate an article about the analytical engine from French into English. This article was based on a seminar Charles had given um, in Italy, giving a seminar in English in Italy and then having it written in French and then translating it back to English. Anyway. <laughs> Um, at the urging of Charles, uh, in addition to the translation, she also wrote uh, some notes as an appendix. Um, this appendix ended up being three times the length of the original article. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, sorry, I got lost. She worked hard at these notes and completed them in 1843. These notes are now the main source of information. Uh, about the engine, and they are her main claim, claim to fame. In these notes, she explained the concepts behind the engine, described its limitations, and also described its potential. You might sh say she was her father's child, for she had an imagination that ran wild over the possibilities the future held. She recognized that it wasn't necessary to feed numbers into the machine. She even speculated that it might be able to compose music. If you've seen the art that Google's image recognition software recently made, you might agree that her prediction of computer creativity seems to have come true. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's amazing. Um, she spoke about the relationship between operation time and the complexity of a program, but I don't know if she ever came across the question of P versus NP. In the notes, she also included an explicit set of instructions for the machine to calculate Bernoulli numbers. This set of instructions is regarded as the world's first computer program, which makes Ada, Countess of Lovelace, the world's first programmer. The translation of the original article and Ada Lovelace's notes are available online. <laughs> After finishing the notes, Ada continued working on mathematics for a while, but without a proper teacher, it was hard for her to get very far. She experimented with writing poetry, probably out of a sort of hero worship of the famous father she'd never known. She fell into drinking and gambling. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit abrupt, wasn't it? <laughs> she did. Um, and uh, then in 1852, at the age of 36, 
She died of uterine cancer. But she had continued working and talking with Babbage until shortly before her death. He had lost his favorite protege, but after a while, he picked up his old habits. He continued quarreling with the government, um, worked on the rail system, wrote a book on natural theology, um, and died in 1871 at the ripe old age of 79. <laughs> he had lived a very interesting life, um, but I'd say the engines were the most notable achievement, despite his troubles building them. To have designed a computer before steam engines uh, had been replaced by electricity. This is the ultimate steampunk fantasy. As I mentioned at the beginning, it was 75 years after his death that electricity was harnessed to create ENIAC, the first, prop, the first computer as we know it, 75 years later. A complete working difference engine was built by the year 2000, owned and housed by the London Science Museum. It weighs five tons. There is also a project called Plan 28, which aims to build an analytical engine by the 2030s, 200 years after the original uh, one was conceived. ADA is now the name of a programming language which was developed by the US Department of Defense around eight, 1980. This was a story about two people and two machines. But more than that, I intended this story to be a tribute to automation in general. The Industrial Revolution saw the introduction of many inventions that took boring, repetitive tasks out of the hands of people whose brains are capable of so much more. It was the mechanization of the mundane, and I'm very grateful for it, except for the carbon emissions. Thank you. Thank you.